Lord, we thank you for the men and women who gave the ultimate sacrifice for us. For so many of us, we come to this Memorial Day weekend and we just say, man, it's sunny out and we get an extra day. Lord, today I think we forget, God, the cost, the price, the, 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 the toll that still lingers. Jesus, today we just say thank you. And for all of these men and women who paid that price, we're so grateful. Be with their families, Jesus. Just be with their families as they continue to navigate through the loss and the pain. Bless them, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I want to tell you a story of two couples, Nora, Ken, David, and Susan. Nora, 43, was a, success, was a successful career freelance magazine writing. She had two children, married to Ken for 15 years, who was a media executive, typical of many couples today, committed to their relationship and their family as much as to their careers. Something troubles them. It's what happened along the way during their marriage. Nothing was really wrong, but the excitement, the energy, the feeling of connection and passion that were once there gradually began to wane and fade over the years. The old feelings haven't exactly disappeared, Nora says. Nor, Nora says, now they feel like there's something that's wrong and not like they used to be. But mostly it feels like a relationship is flatlined. Another couple, David and Susan, say they had recently celebrated their 11th anniversary. The second, two, David celebrated the second anniversary to his second wife, Susan. He describes a similar shift, saying that the relationship settled into a state of depressing comfortableness. He's even thought about having an affair. You know, these laments that face these couples, the, 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 the pain that shows up in the lives of these two families, maybe something that shows up in the life of your family, and maybe even today, where you find yourself not experiencing what you used to experience, not feeling what you used to feel, not, not finding what you used to find, that, that, that passion, that joy, somehow it's waned a touch. And your relationship is turned into a, what psychologists call a functional relationship. You're going through the motions. Maybe that's you today. Or maybe you find yourself not married at all and you're saying to yourself, Pastor, I have no idea where you're going and how this applies to my life. And I would tell you that if you're here and you call this home your family, then this applies to you too. Some of us have a functional relationship with God and maybe even a functional relationship with each other. We just get by. We just do what we're supposed to do. We just find ourselves checking boxes and we fail to remember that we're involved in family. We're in the middle of a six-week series and called, called Inside the Wire. The Wire, what is the wire? Well, if you have any military background, you know that the wire is indicative of this, this thing called base camp. It's the place out on a military battlefield where, where soldiers would come in and find at least a moment of refreshment, a, a moment of, of some sort of a reprieve where they can get refueled and, and, and even reload their ammunition and, and have a moment of rest. And It's supposed to be safe inside the wire, but on any battlefield you would know that the wire is not necessarily always a safe place. 
In this six-week series called Inside the Wire, I'm using that, that, that terminology, the wire, to, to give a picture of family. Because in a lot of ways, our families are in the middle of a battlefield. And the family is supposed to be that safe place where you find a, a food and family and warmth and welcoming. And, and, and the idea of being a family inside a wire is supposed to be the picture of the enemy being outside the wire. Yet oftentimes we find that the enemy makes his way in inside the wire. And maybe that's where you find yourself today, where you're saying to yourself, like, man, I, I want to understand family. I want to understand what this is all about. And, and I find myself in the middle of a battlefield. Maybe that's you today. And if it is, whether it's your current family or your family of origin, we find ourselves still the same inside the wire. I want to talk to you this morning about living life inside family and hoping that you can find some tools that will help you navigate more clearly and successfully in this journey called family. Will you join me as we pray? God, help us today to hear what you have to say. There's so much that we can learn about you. There's so much that you intended for us to find in this thing called family. Will you help us to see it more clearly? You're amazing, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we talked about the purpose of family, the purpose of family. And I told you, I told you this, there are two things, primarily, two elements that, that I think God intentionally wanted us to uh, experience or see or be introduced to, or even elements that were supposed to grow in us in this thing called family. The first element that God's intention, the, the, the purpose, really, that God intended for us to discover in family was our identity. He intended for us to find our identity in family. That, that was the place. He intended for you to find yourself, your identity, to discover who you are in the context of siblings or, or, or in the context of being uh, married or, or, or in the context of a church family. Really, family was the place where you would find identity. I, my, uh, there's five siblings in my, my family, and so uh, myself and three of us uh, were all together this last week. My mom's getting a little older, and so we were having this discussion on what to help mom into her next season of life and all that, that stuff that happens. And, and my other sibling, uh, she's from Tennessee. She was actually on uh, FaceTime with us as we were kind of discussing. I can tell you, first of all, my family, they're funny humans. They're, they're funny humans. And, and they are, uh, but, it's, but it's really funny because I'm, I'm the middle kid of the five, right? So I'm smack in the middle of this whole thing. And and it's funny when we're all separate, we're all individuals, we're all, we're all pretty strong in our own right. But when we get together, then we all like line up in this birth order moment, right? And so my older brother starts to take the reins, and this is what's going to happen. But it doesn't take long before, well, I showed up. <laughs> and, and I started being like the, I, I couldn't just sit there. I had to say a few things. And so it's just kind of funny how, uh, you know what it's like in your family, right? You, you, just, you kind of discover your role and you go with it, right? Because family was supposed to be about the discovery of your identity. Family was supposed to be that place where you were to find out your strengths and your weaknesses and, and, and the, the things that you were capable of. Family was actually supposed to be the place where you discovered your spiritual giftings. I think it's a lot of where that was supposed to happen. You know what else the other purpose of family is that we were supposed to discover in family? Who God was. Family was supposed to be that place that we were supposed to discover who God is. It was where we were supposed to say, oh, oh, you're like that. You're like dad. That's what you're supposed to be. And oh, that's great because I see the loving, caring, faithful, never leaving or hurting. That's the God. Oh, that's who God is. And if you could see all the thought bubbles above your heads right now, you realize how twisted and contorted that's gotten. 
because so many of us view God that very way. And so many of us have had this distortion of who God is based on who our, 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 our paternal family of origin person was. And we get that idea of, of our dad, and then we think God. And that was difficult for me for a long time. I had the hardest time. I remember once, one Sunday morning, it was years and years ago, I got up and I preached about fatherhood. And I said, hey, let me tell you about fatherhood. And I was going on and on about this. And this, this young lady came up fit to be tied, man. I mean, I thought she was going to deck me. She, she looks at me and she said, it must have been good for you, Pastor, because you must have had a great father and you say all these great things about dads. I'm like, little did you know, I came from a broken home where my dad was anything but loving and caring in a lot of ways. I'm just, and so, so the point I'm trying to make is it was a difficult journey for me to, to go from what I thought God was to me and God was on this earth and it was difficult. But that was the point, right? Man, if I was the enemy, you know what I would try to mess up? I would try to mess up family. Because if you can mess up family, you know what you could really destroy? <laughs> People's identity and their understanding of who God is. You could really twist that up. Seems to be working. Because if you could redefine, if you could uh, restructure, if you could reframe, if you could do everything you could to do family except the way God intended, then you could really mess with stuff. The enemy's no dummy. He's been doing that for a long time. So why do I talk about family every year? Why do I take some time every year and talk six weeks about family? You know why? <laughs> we should be talking about it every day. Because to me, it's the place where we begin to understand our identity and literally who God is. And in a lot of ways, whether you are still in your family, nuclear family, whether you're still in your family of origin or whatever it is that you find yourself, you're in this church family and in a lot of ways, we still find ourselves, uh, well, faking our way through it here, too. And God wants us to find out who we really are and who he really is. I'd even be so bold as to tell you this, that I believe family is the single most powerful institution on the planet. I think family is the single most powerful institution on the planet. Not a government, not some sort of a financial institution. I think family is the most powerful institution. How do I know that? Well, take a look at y'all. Every one of us is who we are today because of some sort of a family, not because of some sort of a government, uh, whatever it was. We, we, we are affected by that for sure. But the truth is, our, our family of origin is where, is where really we began to understand who that was and who we are supposed to be. I think the family is the most powerful institution because God intended it that way. God wants us to look at family. He wants us to discover what family really is. And let me tell you this. If you're here today or you're watching us online, let me tell you this. I'm so glad you're here because I want to help you begin to understand a little more clearly of what God intended for you to do in family. Really what I want to help you do is to find some healing. And my assumption is, is that we're all just a little broken. In fact, I would even go so boldly as to say this. Last week we talked about the family is being broken, Right? I think the key to broken family isn't the fact that your wife needs the fixing. The key to fixing the broken family is in making sure that guy you call your husband is supposed to get it figured out. You realize the key to fixing your broken family is one thing. Fixing you. Why? Because you bring broken you into your family. What, so I'm the big problem? <laughs> You're certainly part of it. How do I know that? Because you breathe and blink and filled with sin like the rest of us. That's it, right? All you have control over is you. And if you bring broken you into your family, then you're going to bring brokenness into your home. Well, then the key to getting a fix is fixing you. 
let God deal with them, right? Really? So many of you are like texting your spouse, you need to be here next service. This is for you. <laughs> you know what? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But God brought you here today to hear about fixing you. Amen? Do you really believe that? I think if I got more texts this last week from, from you all, but one of the texts I got was, is like, dang, that hurt. Because I think it's all her fault. <laughs> Man, that was hard because I think it's all his fault. But when you get healed and you find hope and you bring healing, you realize that your healing, bringing your healing into your home brings healing into your broken family. You finding hope and purpose and direction actually brings healing into your home. Yeah, but she's got all the problems. Uh, you know what? Who knows? But the truth is, you bring healed you into home, you begin to heal your home. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open it up to the book of Philippians. Philippians. I love this. The book of Philippians is a great little, it's a letter. It's a, it's a letter written to the church of Philippi. Literally, the book of Philippians is just four chapters. It's a little teeny book. You get home, read it three or four times. I mean, just, just, just in, envelop yourself in this. Listen to this about Philippians. You're going to love this. Philippians is also known as the letter of joy. Literally, is about joy. 19 times the word joy or rejoice shows up in the book of Philippians. You think, like, that's great now. So, so let's, let's just unpack just for a second where the book of Philippians came from. The book of Philippians actually came from the Apostle Paul's hand as he's writing from a Roman prison cell chained between two guards. Let's think about that for a second. Paul's writing this epistle or this letter to the church of Philippi about joy. 19 times it says somehow in the process of this of, of joy or joying or rejoicing somehow in this book. Paul's writing this chain between two guards 24 hours a day from a Roman prison cell. He's literally dictating it to somebody who's writing it down. How about that, right? So, so Paul's writing this in the middle of circumstances that are crummy. Paul's writing this letter in the middle of circumstances that stink. Paul's chained between a couple of guards. He doesn't know if Caesar's going to befriend him or behead him. But Paul's not in a good place right now. I mean, this is, this is really on the crux of Christianity being looked at really horribly and, and, and all the, the craziness that was going on in the nation. And so Paul jumps in and he says, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. I say again, rejoice. He begins to, to, to begin to describe to them that joy. Get this. Joy, joy is going to be the thing that's going to help you to move beyond your emotions. Move beyond your, uh, joy is going to get you out of an emotional uh, pit. Joy. Hmm. The basic message of the book of Philippians is simply this. Joy is not based on how one feels. Joy is based on how one thinks. Let me say that again. The basic message of the book of Philippians is joy based on how one thinks, not based on how one feels. This book is all about active thinking, not passive feeling. Most of us live in family, actively feeling and passively thinking. We live in family saying, you hurt me, I, I, I'm, I, I'm devastated, this is difficult, I was, whatever all the things that go on, and most of the time, our, our brains get us into these crazy cycles, and we go over and over again, and our, uh, we start actively uh, feeling more than we actually start to th actively think. And think through some of the craziness that goes on. 
in our heads, and it grows bigger and uglier and gets hair and it gets weird. Listen to this. Philippians 1.19. Listen, if you're going to fix your thinking, if it's a broken thinker you got to fix, first thing we do is we need to learn how to love with our heads, not our emotions. I love Philippians 1.9. It says this, this is in the message translation of the Bible. It's really more of a paraphrase, and so it may not follow exactly like you're used to, but just listen to how it's spoken. It says Philippians 1.9. This is my prayer, that your love will flourish and that that your love will flourish and that you will not only love much, but love well. Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head to test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. Live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus would be proud of, bountiful in fruits from the soul, making Jesus attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. Man, I love it. I love spoken out of that. Can I tell you this? Love, listen to this, love requires boundaries. I don't know if you realize that. And do you know that, that, that part of love actually includes pain? See, we're kind of convinced that love only has this good feeling about it. That everything about love is good and feeling. Everything about love is, is just this moment of, of ecstasy. And once the ecstasy or the feeling leaves, then somehow we've lost the love. That's the problem with, with us today is that we actually say things like this. I feel in love. Or I fell in love. Or I fell out of love. Let me just help you understand something. Love is not an emotion. Love is a choice. That's followed by emotion. Tweet that. <laughs> love is a choice that's followed by emotion. The problem is, is that we have this idea that if I feel in love or I feel out of love, that somehow love has, has embraced me or love has left me. Love isn't about that. Love is a decision. Love is a choice. And let me tell you this. If you've been married for 10 minutes, you realize that love is a choice. Come on. Some would say amen. Yeah? <laughs> so these, some of you guys, <laughs> you said that a little loud. <laughs> Let me tell you this. Love is a choice. Love is a choice because, because it's difficult to maintain that along the way. Hmm. It says to love circumspectly. I love this. The word circumspect is a word that we don't use very often. But here's what circumspect means. Circumspect means to carefully consider all circumstances possible with consequences. Circumspect means to carefully consider all circumstances and possible consequences. In other words, love using your head, not your heart. Do you wish you could tell your 16-year-old daughters that? Come on. Tell, yeah, totally, right? But remember, you were 16, then too, and you didn't love with your head. You loved with your heart. He's cute. She's pretty. Enough said. We're getting married. Come on, the whole thing, right? And at some point you realize, look, you're going to have to change your, your approach, right? You're going to have to realize that love is with your head, not with your heart. Hmm. And I want to I share just a little bit with you today about something that, that I think is a, a critical, a critical uh, cancer to the family today. I want to call this word, this is a word that, that we don't like to toss around. Some people have actually used this word that, that to describe an entire generation of people. The word I want to use this morning is called indifference. Indifference. Indifference is an ugly word. 
Indifference. The definition of indifference in Webster's Dictionary says this. Indifference is the lack of interest or concern. Non-importance. Little or no concern at all. Indifference. Indifference is the lack of interest or concern or non-importance. See, I can go on and on about talking about the emotion of family and, and whether you feel love or not feel love. I just, I feel like I want to just split the seams for a second and spread it all out and say that there's some people here that actually feel nothing. There's some people here this morning that actually feel nothing towards family. I, I, I know because the, the siblings I sat down with that night, one of them said, you know, I just don't feel anything about this particular situation. I just don't feel anything. And I could tell because of some of the pain that had happened in the past or some of the, some of the, 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 the whatever that went on in that person's life, there's the sense of like, I just don't feel anything. And some of you feel that way about the current family you're living in now. Some of you feel that way about your marriage. Indifferent. You just kind of go through the motions like our friends at the beginning of this message. You find yourself passionless, maybe even visionless. You're, you're, you're paying your bills, you're showing up to in church, you're doing the things you're supposed to do, but you just don't feel it anymore. And because you weren't created to live that way, you find yourself looking for another way to get the excitement back, usually out of inappropriate means. How do you get through this indifference that so many of us suffer from? And again, whether you're married for 10 minutes or 10 years or 40 years, some of us find ourselves sneaking into this thing called indifference. Indifference is this thing that creeps into our churches. It creeps into our families. It creeps into all sorts of, of, of relational institutions. Why? Because relationship requires a lot of work. And it's too difficult at times to deal with the work. And so we just, we just find ourselves sharing the same zip code, sharing the same address, getting the mail from the mailbox and putting it on the whatever it is and Here's your mail, here's my mail, and high-five each other at night and just go to bed. Indifference. Indifference is a kid. You know what indifference is like? Indifference is like my, my, my lawn. Polly and I bought this house a little while back, and so this is, this is my first spring, summer. I'm working into my lawn, right? And so this lawn that I bought was literally encroached upon by stickers and shrubs. And so I've been like, I keep telling my neighbor, he's like, dude, you're killing a lot of those stickers. I told him, I said, you know what stickers are? He said, what? And I said, Black, blackberries, here's what they are. Blackberries are sin. He goes, well, I said, it's like sin because it's been taking my land too long. He's like, you've been here for three months, pal. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to reclaim the land, right? But, but So, yeah, funny and all. But he's like, good luck. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm knocking it out, doing the best I can. I'm trying to kill stickers and all that stuff. But what's happening is I'm finding underneath all these sticker bushes, moss growing everywhere. You know, if you stand in my living room and look out at my lawn, you would say, Look, the stickers are gone, and the lawn is green. You'd say, like, yay, you win. So you walk out there into a spongy, green, mossy stuff. Like, like 30%, maybe even 40% of my yard, moss. So, you know, you want to go buy moss out, then it turns from green to black. Fun, right? So I'm like, I got to do something better. So I'm, I've got all my remedies I'm working on. But the truth is, you know what indifference is like? Indifference is like moss. It just begins to overtake the good stuff, and from a distance, it looks like it's just fine. And so many of us live a life of indifference toward each other or, or towards our family or even our family of origin. When we get indifferent, you know what it is? It starts to grow moss. It looks fine from a distance. But when you go walk on that spongy stuff, you know that it ain't grass. It's actually killing the grass. 
It's actually killing its purpose. And so many of us, indifference has crept into our marriages, has crept into our families, or maybe even crept into relationships from somebody in our past. And we found ourselves uh, either coping with life through indifference, because indifference can be a coping mechanism just to save you from the pain of having to live in it all the time. And what happens is this moss begins to grow and literally strangle out anything of hope. Hmm. Indifference left unchecked will leave you and your family teetering on the edge of success or failure. Listen, if you find yourself coping with indifference in your life, you find yourself living life with this person that you used to call your spouse or this person that you used to lovingly introduce as my best friend, you find yourself just navigating through. Let me tell you, that you need some help. I'm glad you're here today, but I promise you, one good sermon is not going to solve your journey. What I'm telling you as your pastor is this, and you need, you need to talk to some people. You need to get some, some help. Now, now, remember, I told you last week, I'm a terrible counselor. You don't want to see me. Right? I mean, I, because you, I, I promise you. But I, but I know good counselors. And so if you need help calling the counselor, call our office and we'll, set, we'll hook you up with somebody. We'll help you find some great people who will help your marriage, who will help your family, who will help the pain in your past. But if you don't deal with the indifference in your heart, because if you sit over here and just say, listen, I just don't feel it anymore, that's, that's a problem. It's the moss growing in the lawn of your life. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 says it's interesting. Paul, again, in a Roman prison cell, writes this little moment, and he begins to tell them, he begins to say, listen, my life is in the middle of the craziest moment. I'm in prison. I can't do anything. I can't go anywhere. I can't really do anything of any significance, so I'm going to write a letter. In the middle of this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul, completely chained, begins to tell people to rejoice, begins to tell them to not live under the pain of their past, not live under their, their current circumstances. He says, rejoice, rejoice. Listen to what it says. If we're gonna recover from indifference, the first thing that we need to do is rejoice. If we're gonna recover from indifference in our life, we have to rejoice. Philippians 3.1 says this, whatever happens, dear brothers and sisters, may the Lord give you joy. I never get tired of telling you this. I'm working on this for your own good. I'm doing this for your own good. Rejoice. Listen, if you want to begin to, do you realize the book of Hebrews, or the, the, in the Hebrew uh, language, the, there's 27 different words for the, understanding words for the word joy or rejoice. Paul says for us to begin to move past indifference, to, to begin to regain a passion again, that at some point we need to begin to rejoice to the Lord. Uh, that sounds so crazy, right? It just sounds so, so weird. But, but, but uh, did you hear this morning as the announcements were given, the idea that, listen, as we worship the Lord, as we rejoice in the Lord, that the enemies begin to flee. And I think sometimes we forget. Sometimes we don't rejoice in the Lord because our circumstances are so crummy that we feel like there's nothing worth rejoicing about. That, my brother, is when you need to rejoice the most. Rejoice in what? Rejoice in him, not in your circumstance. I think too many of us begin to think like, oh gosh, I, I can't do it. you realize that you can't live indifferent and, and rejoice at the same time? Because your indifference becomes tainted and cloudy. Your, your, your life becomes tainted and cloudy and you can't see straight. Maybe that's what's affected your worship. is because you're living life with a clouded vision. And instead of rejoicing, you find yourself complaining. Instead of rejoicing, you find yourself um, saying that hurts. Instead of rejoicing, you find yourself saying, like, I can't do this. Instead of rejoicing, you find yourself saying, I just can't do this anymore because it's too painful. Rejoice. Rejoy. 
joying all over again. Rejoice. Joy done again. You see, joy is supposed to be something. Do you realize that the Bible says that joy is a fruit of the Spirit? The Bible says that joy is this thing that's supposed to, to, to grow off of us because we're living a life filled with love. And, and as joy is one of those fruits of the Spirit, it, it really part of the fruit of the Spirit of love is joy. It's literally an, uh, a fruit that grows off of the life of love. You can't walk in love if you're finding yourself living in indifference because you can't live in rejoicing and in indifference at the same time. Hmm. So what keeps us from joying the most? What keeps, you know, here's what I think keeps us from joying, right? I call it the uns, U-N, the uns. Here's what keeps us from joy the most, uns, unsatisfied expectations. You thought your marriage would be, you thought your finances could be, you thought your children should be, you thought your career, all these un, unmet expectations. Here's another un, unresolved conflict keeps you from joy. Unresolved conflict. You have this idea of a relationship with your spouse or your friend or someone else in your church. And these unresolved conflicts leave yourself without joy. Because you find yourself thinking how right you are and how wrong they are. And when, you're, when your focus is on that, that's why I love what God did. God, God made us to focus on one thing at a time. We can't focus on more than one thing. And so when we're living in the uns of life, unsatisfied, uh, all of those things, when we find ourselves living in the uns of life, we're focused on that thing. You remember what worship is, right? Worship was what we give our time, energy, and affection over to. When we're focusing on the uns, unsatisfied, uh, un, uh, whatever, all those kind of things that keep us from the clarity of worship. Uns, unresolved conflict, unconfessed sin. Listen to this. The Bible says in Psalm 32, when I kept silent my sin, my bones wasted away. The unconfessed sin, the uns keep us from joy. They hold us back from what God intended us to do. And we find ourselves living in this joyless, expressionless way of life because we're just wrapped up in all sorts of conflict and, and trying to deal with it our own way. Living in indifference, we need to rejoice in the Lord. Number two, to recover from indifference, we need to fix our thoughts. To recover from indifference for your family or for wherever you are, you have to fix your thoughts. I love this in, in uh, Philippians 4.8. It says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, let me say one more thing as I close this letter. Fix your thoughts on what is honorable, right? Think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. Think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all that you've learned and heard me say from the time you saw, you saw me doing, and the God of peace will be with you. I love this, the word fix. It says, fix your thoughts. It, it comes from the, the Greek word uh, legizomai. It's actually where we get, listen to this, to fix your thoughts. Actually where we get the word legitimate, right? Or if you're a millennial, legit, right? So, so legit, fix your thoughts. Literally, he's saying this, think about something legitimate. In other words, you have to fix your thoughts. You, you have to choose to le think about what is legitimate or legit or true or doesn't waver. Something that's legit is like for real, right? And literally, he's saying this, stop thinking about the things that are not for real, if you want to begin to recover from indifference in your life, let me just tell you this first and foremost. It's, it's a lot of work. Because your propensity is to always downward slide into this humdrum, indifferent, moss-growing life. Fighting weeds in your life is a lot of work. Recovering from a distance means that you have to choose to legitimize, fix your thoughts. 
And again, if you've been married for 10 months or 10 minutes, you you have to fix your thoughts. You have to set your thinking. You have to decide what is the legitimate truth, not what is the emotional lie. And too many of us have have lived on a steady diet of an emotional lie for too long. And do you realize you tell yourself a lie long enough, it begins to feel like a truth. We never actually get to the point where we're thinking, like, what is the actual truth? Because the lie has become legitimate to us. We justify it. We play with it. We kick it around. We decide that this is true. And we try to convince our friends that it's true so they can be mad at him too. Hmm. To recover from indifference, we need to rejoice in the Lord. We need to fix our thoughts. And we need to boast in Christ's goodness. I love this. Philippians 3.3. For we who worship God in spirit are the only ones who are truly circumcised. We put no confidence in human effort. Instead, we boast about what Christ Jesus has done for us. We boast. I love this. You know, if you were to take indifference and you were to put it up on the, uh, the, the, the table to dissect it, you know, if you cut indifference open and you pulled back the skin and you began to look inside of what indifference is really at its core, you know what it is? Self. If you pulled indifference back, what you get is self. In other words, it's all about me. Now, that's justified to some degree. I, I, you feel like things inside of your heart where, where, when I say you pull back the, the, the sides of it and you see self, I can't do it alone. Uh, I don't even care anymore. I've been hurt too much. I don't need anyone else. No one really understands my situation anyway. And self becomes this primary driving force in our life. Keeping us, keeping us from something that could be far greater is a healthy family. Paul says this. He says, boast only in the Lord. I love this because the word boast, you know where the word boast actually is where we get the word from from the Greek word. It's actually where we get the word worship. I I can't describe the word because it's too hard to say, but I can tell you this. Boast only in the Lord. Literally, it says to put your energy and affections on the Lord. And when you begin to do that, you begin to move past indifference. See, far too many of us live in an Instagram posting world. No one posts the uglies on Instagram. Uh, nobody does that, right? My, my little girl yesterday, she came home. She said, Daddy, you know what's funny? She said, there's a friend of mine who posted a picture of her baby, and behind, the baby was crying. The baby was crying, sitting on the floor in the middle of a messy living room. And the mommy posted this picture and said, this is what life is really like being a mommy. And my daughter was like, my daughter who's pregnant was like, huh. <laughs> I said, yeah, honey, she's probably right. She is right. Get two or three of them, and it's worse. No, I'm telling you. I, but the thing is, I, I just went, <laughs> yesterday my daughter and I were talking, and I said, we were talking about babies and how great it's going to be, and it's her first baby. And so we, somehow we started talking about babies and how much they cost. And I was like, you know, babies are expensive, but teenagers are more expensive. You know, and I, thought, I said, you guys cost a she, because she's looking at our house, and she's like, Dad, this is a really cool house. And I said, because I can afford it now. <laughs> you guys are gone. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm teasing. Uh, uh, kind of joking. But, but I can tell you, right? See, what happens in this Instagram world is we just get this idea that we want everyone to see our goodies and all the great stuff. Paul says, boast only in the Lord. Literally, Paul says this. If you're going to post something on Instagram, post, post something about Jesus. Po- po- post something about, the, not because your life is perfect, but because your life is difficult. That's why you boast in the Lord. Not because everything works right, it's because everything's not going right that you boast in the Lord. Paul's in the middle of a, of a prison cell, and he says, I choose to boast only in him. Listen, if you want to move past indifference, you have to choose to worship. You have to true, choose to boast in Jesus. 
Now, what's going to happen when you start to do these things in your life? Everything's just going to be okay and go away? Mm -mm. I can can ask all of you who experience indifference in family to come up here to the altar and we just come pray for you. We could do that. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You walk away and feel good for a minute. Then you'll walk outside and get in an argument in the car. You know why? Because moving past indifference is just a lot of work. It's like my chiropractor friends tell me. Come into my office and get adjusted this week. And then keep coming back for the next year and a half every day. And we'll adjust you. You see, that's, that's how you remove indifference from your life. It's a steady diet of doing the opposite thing that you keep telling yourself. See, in your brain, you're, you're justified. In the brain, you're right and he's wrong. In your brain, she should change things. In your brain, but you begin to readjust it, re- retrain your thinking. And you watch God begin to remove indifference. I can tell you as someone who's been married for 27 years, the day Polly and I got married was the most emotionally high, amazing day. And from then till now, we've had our, we've had our days. We've had our days of, wow, this is amazing, to, huh. Right? If you don't speak in tongues, you understood what I just said. You speak in tongues. Go on. Huh. You know how I get past the, huh. Rejoice in the Lord. Because he's worthy. And then you get your eyes off of you. You begin to say, God, you're good. And I need your help. So I want to pray for you today. I'm just assuming that there's more than one person here who deals with indifference in your family. So Jesus, this morning I come. Lord, I come with this, this family of people called Puget Sound Christian Center. Lord, I come to you with this, with this family of people who, who I know, like the moss that grows on a lawn, that from a distance we look great. Lord, under the surface, the moss is choking out our life. Lord, I pray right now that you help these men and women recover from indifference and begin the journey, begin the journey of walking out this rejoicing in the Lord, fixing their thoughts, and truly boasting in you with all of their hearts. Lord, I pray today that these men and women would begin to move past indifference because they're making choices to do so. I pray for courage, courage to face the hard things, courage to step out on what's right, courage to stand strong in the midst of an emotional storm. I pray for these people who have experienced tremendous pain, tremendous pain, both from their past and their present, and I pray, God, that they would seek counsel. Lord, if I could lay my hands on every person here, I would and say, Jesus, bless you. But don't stop now. Fix your thoughts on what is true. Rejoice in the Lord and boast only in him. Be with us today, God, as we journey this course. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's good, man. This journey, that's not easy. Oh, it's worth it.